This is the I Read Comic Books podcast. I am your host for this week's episode, Paul Jaisley, filling in once again for Michael Rappin, but obviously I'm not alone. I am joined this week by two novelty-shaped plastic movie theater popcorn buckets, Brian Murray. Hello. And Paloma. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome, both of you. I'm so excited to talk to you today. We've got a great topic. We'll be talking about comic book adaptations of blockbuster films. Um, I think we all stuck to pretty much on-brand choices, but it should be a good conversation about (laughs) those particular comics. Uh, But before we get there, obviously, I'm obligated to ask two questions as host. That is, how have you been and how have comic books been? Let's start with you, Paloma. Well, Paul, I've been great. I just saw Paramore, top band of all time. Um, So (laughs) despite the air quality, we had a great time. Nice. And I would say comics have been great. I decided, I was like, what if I became obsessed with Star Wars? And then a friend pulled me aside and was like, "That's good. (laughs) What if you just became obsessed with one character? And I was like, okay, mm-hmm. that's that's a little safe. Let's start there. And so I chose Dr. Afra, and I okay. read Doctor Star Wars Dr. Afra Volume 1 by Kieran Gillen with art by Kev Walker, question mark. And um, I love her. Extremely morally gray to kind <laughs> of evil character. She's like an archaeologist, so you have your Indiana Jones flair, but... Um, a hot lady, and she's kind of bad. I wish someone had told me that a while ago because I've heard about this Afro, Dr. Afro character. I had no idea, but you just sold it in like one sentence to me <laughs> better than anyone else ever has. So thank you. I, I love what I love about her is that she is like definitely kind of villainous and she knows it, and she doesn't necessarily like that about herself, mm-hmm. but she also doesn't really know how to turn it off. Yes, I. She like pulled a gun on her father. I don't know if this is spoilers. He's alive, so I guess that's fine. Maybe that's a spoiler. <laughs> pulled a gun out on him, threatened to kill him. She, her two of her three companions are like torture droids, which I didn't know was possible. Okay. Quite terrifying. They are the heavily armed evil (laughs) counterparts to R2 and C-3PO. Yeah, I was like, okay, Darth Vader, I guess if you're missing your friends, this is an extreme version of them. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I'm loving it so far. Uh, Also joined by uh, Black Kersantan, who we saw in the the Boba Fett show. Yeah, Mm -hmm. now more reason for me to finally watch that show because I did not know... (laughs) he was featured in it because she's just I mean, a, a comic lady. She's not in yeah. any of the live action stuff. Featured might be going too far. He appears in the Boba <laughs> Fett show. After after overselling Kara on the, the white suit Darth Vader from a couple episodes back, I'm trying to be more careful. <laughs> Fair enough. Valid. That's great. But yeah, that's, that's where I've been. I love hearing people talk about the Star Wars comics. I've never been actually tempted to dive in, but I know this this character in that series is pretty well loved. So I'll, I guess I'll add it to my to read pile. Yes. <laughs> yeah, Brian. What about you? How have you been, and uh, what comics have you read? Uh, I've been pretty good. Uh, that's your West Michigan weather watch. Um, crunchy <laughs> right now. The air is a little crispy. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not getting it nearly as bad as the East Coast is, but definitely like getting layers of fine ash on things outside mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, so i've been staying inside and uh doing my usual um reading manga um specifically i picked up 
and this is gonna be one of those long manga titles so bear with me i think i turned my childhood friend into a girl <laughs> okay um <laughs> story and art by azusa banjo um and it is uh it's it's definitely a fun like wouldn't it be crazy if we kind of story like mm-hmm. it definitely definitely feels like a setup to a fan fiction is i guess <laughs> what i'm getting at okay where we have uh, our main character who is obsessed with like the the art of makeup not not he's not interested in like wearing it really but like this the idea of how he's going to like beautify others i guess and so he wants to practice on his his childhood best friend so he you know dolls off his childhood best friend and they both immediately start having some kind of feelings about it <laughs> um, <laughs> which i think is interesting you know I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of like weird fucky gender stuff in books for sure so this is this is interesting um it, it is very cute especially if you're into that whole manga thing where like nobody can admit their feelings to themselves so they have to twist into knots to yes. try and uh you know just I, I i'm not i'm not gay for my best friend i i just <laughs> want to protect him because other people think he's a girl and so they're going down like all right all right man just make out already <laughs> and his friend is like i'm not a girl i just like to feel pretty a lot and i like yeah. how people look at me when they think i'm a girl and i'm like all right let's crack this egg yes <laughs> um but yeah i mean it's, it's fun i i hope that if, if it continues, I think there's two volumes right now. I could be mistaken. Uh, I hope that they actually like address the gender and sexual orientation ideas that they're throwing around because mm-hmm. I know that it's it's very easy, especially for like a, a comic manga art form, to dance around that because they don't want to offend anybody who might mm-hmm. be easily offended by things like that. But I think it's fascinating, and I hope that they actually dig into it interesting um yeah yes how about you paul uh well you know as you said uh weather watch has been a little strange here in west michigan and been staying inside it's actually kind of raining today which is a perfect excuse to stay inside and read some comics and trust me i have a huge pile of comics to get to i've really been slacking on my my regular floppies so (laughs) i did read a couple to talk about today one I want to talk about right off the bat is Santo Sisters number four. I've raved about this series before on the show. It's by Greg and Fake. And again, if you've uh, if you don't know about Santo Sisters, it's an indie comic, basically a parody of '90s image superhero books done through the lens of Archie comics. The art style, the humor is very Archie influenced. Uh, a lot of tongue in cheek humor skews a little adult. You know, there is a, a you know thirteen up teenage recommendation on the cover. This issue kind of feels like the most adult of the last few but again there's something explicit nothing gross but just you know some references definitely not a comic for kids uh that being said the cover features a you know a picture of alana and amber the santo sisters fighting one of their arch nemeses bridget spinner it's a woman who's flying a giant fidget spinner and shooting lasers from it it's pretty great um (laughs) that's the kind of humor you're getting in this book it's real silly tongue-in-cheek uh it's kind of interesting this I remember buying the first issue and kind of thinking, oh, this is a fun little one and done like experiment. I didn't expect it to keep going. So, you know, this is issue four. Issue five is already being solicited. I'm so happy to keep this stuff going. It's a fun distraction. And I really like the sort of idea that it's it's only available physically, only available in print. 
and they really lean into the sort of uh, aesthetic of Archie print comics. There's great ads in it. There's an ad for our podcast. Of course, I have to mention that. <gasps> and, uh, you know, there's a back cover ad, which is kind of a spoof on the old like uh, hostess hostess ads you'd get in comic books and stuff so it's a comic book that celebrates the absurdity of comic books and i love it i should also mention uh this is a one issue that has the first part of a two-part story that's the first time they've done that most of these stories are little three or four page little things but it's about um the santo sisters having to thwart a group of carjackers in their neighborhood so we'll see how that wraps up the next issue but yeah i love the santo sisters so glad that keep it keeps coming out and uh yeah again Nice to have a little plug for your podcast in an actual physical comic book. It gives me a thrill every time I see it. When you talked about us all staying on brand for the topic this week, <laughs> I was going to make a joke about like, I didn't know that Maggie the Mechanic was a movie before it was comic. <laughs> uh, and then I saw your list and I was like, oh, perfect. Uh, yep. Yep. Still the reading are the already represented. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Greg and Fake. Um, I'm not sure if there's actually two different people or just, uh, just a pen name for one person. That's the mystery of the Santo sisters. Uh, so there we go. Uh, Paloma, what else did you read this week? So I've been on a huge DC kick with the dawn of DC. So I went back to maybe like a couple relevant limited series to Batman versus Robin. Picked up issue two. And the whole setup is Damien uncovered something while on Lazarus Island, which I know this sounds silly. This island, I think, <laughs> is the birth site of this devil or demon named Nezha who Batman and Superman and Batman Superman World's Finest by Mark Wade and Dan Mora, they imprisoned him back when they were all campy and stuff, and now he's reemerging. Now we're in the present. Damien's possessed by this guy, and all the magic people are being, like, overpowered and just running around. So people from, like, Sandman Universe are in this issue, which I thought was cool. I don't know anything mm -hmm. about these people, but I thought it was cool to see them nonetheless. And... It's just wild to see this genius child who is possessed, but thwart this middle-aged man who's been in the game for a while. <laughs> sure. <laughs> you have, a, yeah, a, a teenager who's trained assassin being possessed by a demon. Like, nothing bad can happen there, right? Right? Like, it's it's <laughs> fine. It's fine. I was just going to say, I've not picked this up, but I actually am really liking the Mark Wade world's finest that yes. it spins out of and like it's 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 so like silver agey and absurd that when you try to explain it like it doesn't make any sense which is my favorite mm -hmm. category for dc comics if i sound insane when i'm explaining it to somebody that's a good <laughs> dc comic story <laughs> yeah it's just been phenomenal that'll be better batmobile season three just uh the yes. we're getting weird with it series season yeah but that's been my main thing lately just seeing where that miniseries goes and then, Paul, have you been reading anything else this week? Uh, yes. Uh, speaking of being on brand, I read the new issue of Unstoppable Doom Patrol. That's issue three. Uh, it's a six-issue miniseries, so this is the halfway point in it. And again, I raved about this book. I think it's such a cool twist on the Doom Patrol dynamic. Uh, written by Dennis Culver, art by Chris Burnham, colors by Brian Reber, and uh, letters by Pat Brousseau. And again, this, this new status quo for the Doom Patrol is that they are... They're basically the X-Men, 100% now. They are rescuing metahumans uh, so they don't get swept up by, you know, Project X or the Suicide Squad or anybody else. They want to, like, be a safe haven for metahumans. Um, and in this issue, they find one uh, a metahuman who's basically been fused with a Starro spore. You know, there's a guy, they're driving a car, Cliff Steele's driving a car, the backseat's a guy with a star, you know, fish on his face. Like, all right, 
I'm into that. And uh, it turns out uh, this character was not uh, brainwashed by Star of the Conqueror because they have metahuman abilities. They basically fused into one being uh, that they're calling themselves Starbro. Pretty great. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I like that because it kind of leads to an interesting conversation. You know, this character is talking about being two people or two brains in one body. Uh, meanwhile, Larry Trainer, negative man, is talking to Cliff Steele about the same thing. Because in the Morrison run, Larry Trainer fused with uh, a woman and the negative spirit, energy spirit to become Rebus. So, I mean, I like that even though this is a new dynamic for the Doom Patrol, they're referencing the older takes on the characters, bring up sort of those themes of identity and uh, gender that, you know, the Morrison run hinted at. So it's still happening in this issue and this series. Uh, meanwhile, Starbro is being pursued by a couple of Green Lanterns. So Kyle Rayner and Guy Gardner show up because uh, they have to eradicate Starro from the universe, obviously. Um, so the Doom Patrol kind of hide from them. Again, you get a flashback to the Morrison run where Guy Gardner is like, oh, yeah, the last time I saw the Doom Patrol, they were trapped inside a painting that somebody made that was going to eat Paris, which is, of course, a reference to the Morrison run. Uh, so moments like that make the series pretty fun. If you are a new fan who just are curious about the Doom Patrol, you can jump right in. If you're someone who's read all the other versions of the characters, there are references to it, including my favorite villain I always like to see pop up in a Doom Patrol comic, and that is Animal Vegetable Mineral Man. Um, he shows up, so the rest of the Doom Patrol are fighting him. Great stuff. Uh, I think the series is super fun. I think Chris Burnham is such a great artist for it. He can do... He can do action. He can do kind of like gross out stuff, body horror stuff, and he can do humor all really well. So again, I think this is, I'm kind of bummed this is only six issues. I'd love to see this kind of story go on, but it's going to make a cool collection. If anybody's kind of curious about the Doom Patrol, this is, I think, a good place to start. So that's what I've been reading. I'm, I'm going to need a little more about Animal Vegetable Mineral Man. <laughs> <laughs> well, Expound Brian, on that, please. <laughs> <laughs> he is a man who is part animal, part vegetable, and part mineral. Oh. Ask a stupid question, get a stupid answer, I guess. Well, and, and uh, you know, I guess brief spoilers. Uh, there's a, It's only a one splash page where you actually see him in this issue, and it's like the rest of the Doom Patrol is fighting him. But he's also been able to create, like, miniature versions, like other animals. He's, like, kind of, like, spawning off, and they're, like, biting people, and they're turning. So it basically becomes a zombified version of Animal Vegetable Mineral Man, causing other Doom Patrol members to grow, like, mineral growths out of their limbs and stuff. It's pretty great. Yeah, I think that by the metrics we've established in this episode, this is a fantastic DC comic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yes, thank you. That is the, that is the matrix for, disco- to, for discussing DC comics right now. So um, I don't know. Well, I guess we'll have a couple more to talk about, and now I'm looking at our notes, so some more DC stuff coming up. Uh, speaking of which, there's new comic books coming out this week that we're all excited to read, uh, I hope. Um, so let's hear what you are excited to read this week. Let's uh, start with you, Brian. What's on the top of your pile? Uh, the top of my pile is the spinoff comic from the Harley Quinn, the animated series. This is the Eat, Bang, Kill Tour. Uh, this is written by T. Franklin with art by Max Saren and Eric Owen. Colors by Marissa Louise and letters by Taylor Esposito. Uh, this book picks up like right after season two of the show. So okay. I guess spoilers to the end of season two of the Harley Quinn show. We pick up immediately after the ending where uh, Poison Ivy's wedding to Kite Man has imploded. And she and Harley Quinn are ready to storm off Thelma and Louise style, which that was a, that was a happy story, right? I haven't seen yeah. it, but yeah, it ended well, rode off into the yeah. sunset together. Yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> um, I, I, I'm picking this up cause I, I did like the show. I think that there are a lot of very fair complaints about it. 
Uh, I know that not everybody is into it, but mm-hmm. I, I personally really enjoyed it. Um, and so we've got that same kind of like, you know, let's call it what it is. It's it's dumb humor. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we combine that with Max Saren's artwork. And it's it's really hitting me like right in my giant days yeah. feels. So gotcha. huh. I, I saw the cover. And I was like, I, I can't place this, but it feels so familiar to me. And then I remembered that was Max Saren. <laughs> Nice. Uh, so I, I wonder if it's the same team that works on the show. I wonder if it's the same writer. I don't know. Uh, I don't know either. That would have been a good thing to look up, but I didn't. <laughs> well, so <laughs> you know what? I'm sure the listeners can do their own research if they're really that curious, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that show is like not really my thing, but I've always liked the di- dynamic between Poison Ivy and Harley Quinn. So if mm-hmm. we're getting like a sort of like you know Thelma Louise style story with them, that actually kind kind of sounds appealing to me. Yeah, their their dynamic on the show is great. Um, yeah. I think that it's one of the more, and this sounds crazy coming from an animated superhero show. It's one of the more realistic relationships I've seen where <laughs> like both parties are kind of fucked up and it actually impacts their relationship. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Maybe that's me projecting. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not dive too deep into that on the show. That's for another episode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what about you, Paloma? What's on the top of your pile for this week? I'm going to cannonball through DC Mech by Kenny Porter and Baldemar Rivas. It was a six-part kind of like Elseworlds DC AU where what if we all piloted mechs? And Mm -hmm. the little premise is at the end of World War II, Earth was invaded by giant mechanized parademons from a planet called Apocalypse. Earth's protectors, the Justice Society of America, were devastated, and with them, the age of superheroes came to an end, and the era of mech began. So, I'm here for the Gundam. (laughs) I'm here for the Gundam. I'm here to be like, how's everyone being reimagined as mech pilots when I'm I'm assuming there are superpowers? Like, Superman is in this. Maybe it's not Kal-El Superman, but I'm pretty stoked. I know Kenny Porter's a big fan of... Gundam, so I'm excited to see like the references sprinkled within. I really want like a like getting the robot Oliver or something yes. like that. <laughs> uh, this sounds awesome. I didn't know this was didn't know this was coming out. I'll check that out uh, again. We're talking about parademons, talking about mechanized uh, demons from Apocalypse. Mm-hmm. We're talking about you know Gundam superheroes. That's a DC book right there that I can get into. Yeah, this is the major downside to having my pull list shipped to me from the comic shop is that I don't know stuff like this is coming out until I hear about it on the show. This is like exactly up my alley and I don't know how I didn't know about it. (laughs) Well, there you go. So we are providing a service to you, Brian, and the listeners to go check this stuff out. Yeah. And I appreciate all your hard work. (laughs) (laughs) I feel there are certain people on this podcast that if you need weird DC recommendations, you know who I'm talking about. So yeah, we can provide that. Um, as for me, before I get to my pick, we got a couple of people listening to us right now live on Discord, which of course you can always do if you're a Patreon member. Um, you can, uh, Hugh is listening along and he wants to read, I'm sorry, Hugh's listening along and they're excited for a click, click, boom, number one. Uh, Nick is listening and, you know, p- taking notes for us by proof listening and he is excited for Miss Truesdale and the Fall of Hyperborea number two. Not sure what that is, Nick. You'll have to fill us in when next time we're on the show. I'd say, uh, it's kind of a, um, uh, Hellboy universe. Thing. Oh, oh, really? Nick reading some Hellboy stuff. Interesting. Yeah, which I only uh, know because I was on the show. I think I was proof listening the last time Nick was talking about it. So, 
Gotcha. It all gotcha. comes full circle. <laughs> uh, again, staying on brand here on the show, because I am picking Night Fever, which is an OGN from Image Comics coming out this uh, next week here. It is by Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips with oh, colors yeah. uh, by Sean's son, um, whose name I'm blanking on, but his last name is also Phillips. That's convenient. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I um, I really, really love Brubaker and Phillips, obviously. you know, I kind of like that they've shifted away from doing you know, monthly comics to doing these sort of like prestige hardcovers a couple times a year. It's a nice format for them. Let's Brubaker kind of breathe a little bit. He's not confined to 22 pages a month for a story. Um, and he kind of do weird stuff. So they've been doing the Reckless series. This is not a Reckless book. This is something else. It's a standalone story. The synopsis uh, reads, in Europe on a business trip, Jonathan Webb can't sleep. Instead, he finds himself wandering at night in a strange foreign city with his new friend, the mysterious and violent Rainer, as his guide. Rainer shows Jonathan the hidden world of the night, a world without rules or limits. And when the fun turns dangerous, Jonathan might find himself trapped in the dark. The question is, what will he do to get home? So I'm assuming there's going to be some crime in this book because it is a Brubaker Phillips comic. <laughs> um, but if they can kind of lean into the sort of weird you know, horror element that the, the uh, description kind of hints at, I think it could be interesting uh, seeing them do something a little bit different than the standard noir, neo-noir horror or crime stuff might suit them well i think sean phillips artwork would work really good in a horror story so mm -hmm. that's what i'm hoping for to pick this up again anything that they put their name on i'm going to buy anyway but i'm pretty excited to see them do something other than reckless at the moment so yeah i was i was listening to that description and just thinking to myself so these these two are fucking right like, <laughs> or yeah yeah or is it a dr jekyll mr hyde thing i don't know is it Ooh. really does the other person really exist i don't know i think there's a lot to unpack there so uh, regardless, again, that's my choice, and that is uh, on brand for me, a new Brubaker Phillips book. So, And thank you, Nick, for reminding me it's Jacob Phillips on Colors for that. Uh, so with that said, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to the movies, sort of. We're going to be reading comic book adaptations of blockbuster films. That's coming up in a little bit. Welcome back. Like I said, we've got a pretty fun topic for today. You know, we're thinking about it's summer blockbuster movie season, but we're a comic books podcast. We want to talk about comics. We thought we'd talk about comic, comic book adaptations of blockbuster films. Usually it's the other way around. We talk about adaptations of comics. We're going backwards, flipping the script a little bit. So we each picked a a uh, adaptation of a popular film uh, we kind of picked ones from different eras, which is interesting. So we kind of see how these books change over time. We're going all the way back to 1977 for Brian's pick. I'm probably guess what movie it is, Brian. Or you probably guess what movie yeah. it is, listeners. But Brian, what did you read for this episode? So I picked Star Wars. Um, <laughs> shock, I know. Hold yeah. for gasps. In my defense, I did try to not pick a Star Wars comic, but it is basically impossible to find the 1993 Topps Comics Jurassic Park comic mm -hmm. without dropping a bunch of cash on eBay. So I had to go with my backup, which... You know, if you know me, you know, Star Wars is almost never my backup. <laughs> the first six issues of the 1977 series are an adaptation of A New Hope. Mm -hmm. uh, and what's most interesting to me about it is that it actually came out in April of 77, whereas the movie didn't come out until May of 77. Mm -hmm. So this is actually like the introduction of these characters effectively mm -hmm. happened in this comic book. Yeah. 
Interesting. I mean, yeah. And again, it's like, it's not so much a standalone publication. They, they're basically publishing a Star Wars standalone series, like an ongoing mm-hmm. comic series. They just happen to use the movie to plot out the first six issues, right? Yeah. And then they were basically told, like, here are the things that you can't do after this. <laughs> they're told, like, you know, don't don't go into Darth Vader's backstory. Mm-hmm. Do not develop this romantic relationship between Leia and Luke. <laughs> Right. Uh, which is a lot harder to look at on page, by the way, when they are like okay. <laughs> frozen, about to kiss. <laughs> right. That moment it's really like, lingers there on the page. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. What in the uh oh <laughs> step bro is going on here? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, and again, so I think I've read this as well. I read this a couple years ago, and it's pretty fun because again, it's like no one knew what Star Wars was going to be. They just knew it was like uh-huh. going to be a movie coming out. They didn't know if it actually was going to be a hit movie or not. You know, a lot of people thought it was going to flop. Um, but somehow they kind of are still able to capture what makes the movie interesting in the, in the comic. Um, I and I really like. I think Howard Chaykin did the art for most of mm-hmm. it, if not all of these issues. And like again, he's just drawing from photos that he's seen of the the uh, ships and stuff and the characters. And somehow it actually looks pretty accurate overall. Yeah, I think that Chaykin did a great job of getting the characters to look like the characters without looking like they're supposed to be like an exact redraw of Mark mm-hmm. Hamill or Carrie Fisher. But the way he draws Luke is, is very much Luke Skywalker. Gotcha. Yeah. And the, the fact that this is based on the script means that we get a little bit of stuff that wasn't actually in the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, so like we get to actually meet Biggs Darklighter instead of him just kind of being introduced and then killed almost immediately. <laughs> Right. That's a, that's a scene that was cut from the original movie. They did film it. You can find it online where Biggs and all of his caped mustachioed glory uh, <laughs> and Luke are talking about their aspirations to save the galaxy. And of course, we also get the uh, the scene with Jabba the Hutt, right? I don't think so. No? I thought that was I don't in remember the original. It. Oh, oh, weird. Okay. Well, never mind. I thought that was in the original uh, script. I, I, it's, in it's possible that yeah. in my you Star Wars brain, I just don't remember <laughs> anything that's specific to this right um except for luke's pink lightsaber that i remember very clearly um a remarkably prescient tie into the barbie movie coming out of this <laughs> um and i if i remember correctly and again it's been a few years since i've read this um because they they don't know exactly like how everything sort of works because i mean it's coming out a month before the the movie comes out but I remember like the last page or something, there's a scene where the Millennium Falcon goes into hyperspace. And I think the way that Jaken draws it is really fascinating. It's like there's a rainbow effect in the background. Like mm-hmm. they don't know how to draw hyperspace. So they have to like kind of figure it out to make it look good in a comic book page. It's really fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. They did a lot of that um, stuff that like it isn't how it is in the, the movie, but it is cool in its own right. Right. So I guess uh, kind of the question we have, we're talking about these is, you know, obviously this is an adaptation of the film, uh, which is interesting in this case because it's coming out slightly before the movie. So, I mean, I'm sure there were kids that knew Star Wars was coming out. I'm sure it'd been advertised, obviously. So if you see the book at the, you know, corner store or at the gas stations, like, oh, I'm going to buy the Star Wars comic. And like, it's getting, getting you hyped up for the movie, but we're reading it after the fact. You've already seen Star Wars, I'm assuming a couple times, Brian. Do you think this uh, yeah, is- at least twice. <laughs> <laughs> at least twice. Do you think this is a good adaptation or are there things about it, you know, good and bad that you can kind of nitpick? I think it's a good adaptation. I think that I, I might almost be too close to this one to judge it objectively. Um, I know there are, there are certain parts where like Darth Vader would say something and I'd go, well, that wasn't the line from the movie. <laughs> um, right. But that that is a nitpick 
that is, I think, specific to people like me who have 80% of the script memorized. <laughs> right, right. But yeah, I, I think that it did a very good job of telling you the story of Star Wars mm -hmm. um, without having to be a scene-by-scene, line-by-line recreation, which I think right. is kind of the, the hallmark of a good adaptation. Sure. Yeah, I think this is definitely one that, again, I, I remember reading it and thinking like, this is as it's not obviously the same as the film and that's what makes it work. It's like, you can kind of read it and enjoy it its own thing. You know, it's, it's like, you don't, it's not like you see and like, well, I've read, I've seen Star Wars. I don't need to read this adaptation. I think there's stuff in there that's kind of worth checking out. Even if you've already seen Star Wars, you know, dozens of times, like I'm sure all of us have. So. Yeah. And I will be seeing Obi-Wan's death scene every time I close my eyes for the rest of my life. <laughs> okay. That was a fucking nightmare. <laughs> it's like, if you ever want to watch an old man melt and burst into flames at the same time, that's, mm -hmm. That's what we got there. <laughs> a little different than the film, but yeah. Much more life. dramatic than simply disappearing out of his robe. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> that's good stuff. But yeah, I think that's kind of interesting because you think about at that point, Marvel probably just bought, be like, hey, we can get the rights to the Star Wars, you know, franchise pretty cheap. Let's just do it. And then somehow they're able to kind of make some interesting comics. They, of course, they keep the story going, you know, after the first six issues and it gets pretty weird because I've read some of that stuff. Uh, you know. Yeah. Almost immediately. <laughs> <laughs> But if you want to see, uh, you know, Han Solo fight space pirates, there's comics out there and, for you. And pal around with a giant green space rabbit. <laughs> if only they would continue that direction for the movies. Oh, well. Um, well, for me, you know, again, I picked something pretty much on brand. I happened to pick this up at the comic shop uh, a couple months ago when I was in there, just flipping through the back issue bins. And it is the comic book adaptation of the blockbuster 1992 film Batman Returns, uh, directed by Tim Burton. Um, I'm going to go out on a limb and say, unlike popular opinion of the film in the past few years, I don't think Batman Returns holds up that well. Um, I remember being 10 years old about when that movie came out and even I was kind of underwhelmed at the time because it's a Tim Burton movie. It's not a Batman movie, you know, you know, and I think that's why people kind of like in the past few years have kind of gone back and reevaluated re the film and say, this is interesting because it's not your standard superhero movie. You know, it's a little weird. It's a little different. It's definitely has a distinct style. Um, you get Christopher Walken being a weirdo. You get Danny DeVito being a weirdo. There's a lot of that movie that I do like, but as a Batman story, I'm not sure it holds up. Uh, so does the adaptation work? Well, unfortunately, the writer Denny O'Neill couldn't rewrite any of the dialogue for this adaptation. So no, it does not quite land on the page any better than it does in the film. Um, it's kind of interesting in that regard. Um, so it's, written by Denny O'Neill, a classic Batman writer, you know, long career writing Batman. So it's kind of an obvious choice to do this adaptation. Um, pencils by Steve Irwin with inks by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Colors by Tom McCraw and letters by John Costanza because it's a DC comic that came in the 90s. Of course, John Costanza lettered it. And it's interesting. Uh, unlike the Star Wars adaptation we just talked about, this is pretty much a line by line, scene, scene by scene recreation of the film on a comic book page. It was published as a big oversized, you know, standalone issue. Not I'm assuming it's not really aimed at the regular Batman readers at the time. It's aimed at people who like the movie or people who are just completists, you know. Um, so in that regard, if you want a recreation of the film on a comic book page, this is exactly what it is. Like I said earlier, the problem is Batman Returns is such a messy movie that Denny O'Neill can't do much. Um, yeah. And the 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 grace, the saving graces of the film, like I said, are Dan DeVito and Christopher Walken being weirdos. And that doesn't really work if you can't hear them saying the lines when you're reading it on the page, right? It just call, falls flat. Um, and also, Daniel O'Neill couldn't rewrite any of the weird, like, uh, misogynistic, you know, jokes they make about 
um, Michelle Pfeiffer throughout the film. Uh, so those all yeah. show up too. <laughs> um, uh, different time. <laughs> yes, 1992. Very, very different. Um, that was 90. I thought that was the 80s. No, 89. I'm, was I'm thinking of the Burton one, yeah. one, I guess. Yeah. Well, yeah. So 89. The issue is like, again, the 1989 Tim Burton Batman film is flawed because Tim Burton famously said he'd never read a comic book before, so he doesn't know what to do with these characters. Uh, that movie is a huge hit. So like, hey, Tim, do more of what you want to do. So Batman Returns is also Tim Burton, but he gets kind of like more creative control of everything. So he's more interested in making an army of penguins and you know, Danny DeVito look like an absolute creep than actually is telling a story. So the story is a complete mess. The visual saving graces don't quite work on a comic book page because you actually can't get the full scope of the city, which is what makes those movies interesting is the way Gotham looks, you know? Um, anyway. I'll, I'll never forget the visual of Danny DeVito rising out of a sewer, cradling a baby. <laughs> yes. And unfortunately, you know, they have that exact same scene in the comic book, but for some reason they staged it from behind. So you kind of see him from the back holding the baby up. It's not nearly as dramatic. So um, you also kind of get the uh, the problem of they can't show all of Gotham City. So you don't get the, that's what makes the movie interesting is the way they make Gotham look. Uh, there's a lot of panels on every page for some reason. They like jam pack every page with panels. So there's not a lot of room for anything to breathe or look cool, which is a shame because... I'm assuming Erwin uh, kind of did the, the breakdowns and then Garcia Lopez did the finishes because Jose Luis Garcia Lopez was primarily doing the licensed artwork for DC at the time. So anything that had a DC character, like a t-shirt or lunchbox, he did the artwork for that. And he also did all the stuff that was licensed for the film. So if you bought, you know, again, a lunchbox that had a drawing of Batman from, of Michael Keaton as Batman, it was his artwork was doing it so it makes sense to have him draw the comic it looks pretty accurate honestly it's almost unnerving how much Dane DeVito looks like Dane DeVito like on the comic book page like he draws everything <laughs> so accurately I mean and of course the, that that rubber Batman suit is so detailed it kind of gets it all it kind of like doesn't work as well on a comic book page obviously because it's kind of can't the coloring can't let everything sort of shine through I guess uh, but again like it, Garcia Lopez is a fantastic artist. He captures the look of the, the look of the film perfectly. But uh, in the end, I think the comic book adaptation falls completely flat because any of the sort of weird charms the movie might have just don't translate to the comic book page at all. So, yeah, yeah it sounds like uh, kind of a common theme and adaptations in general of just a bunch of very talented people doing their best with what they've got. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like, I don't know. Again, I didn't do too much research, but I imagine, you know, a movie like Batman Returns, there's so much writing on it. They probably didn't want anything. They didn't, unlike the Star Wars adaptation, they probably stuck so close to the movie. It's like, we can't have anything that's not in the film. The movie's got so, so much control over it. They have to really like make sure that everything that's adapted from it is pretty accurate. Um, yeah, for better or for worse. I think it's kind of a weird thing. I do like garcia lopez's artwork so much that it was kind of fun to sit down and read it but it did not make me want to go back and watch that movie again which i hadn't done in a couple years so not a successful adaptation by my uh, estimation yeah well you didn't sound remotely insane talking about it so. <laughs> <laughs> which is right if you're talking about a movie where a woman falls out of a window and is revived by a group of cats and then also there's an army of penguins with rockets on their backs that should be fun unfortunately it's not fun in this comic book um, all right. So uh, what's, again, what's kind of interesting, if we're kind of tracing the history of these adaptations, we have one from the 70s where it's clearly like, all right, we can try to like make money off this licensed product that nobody knows. 
this is a different one where this is clearly just published as a standalone one shot designed to get kids to give you their money. You know, that's all it is, is com- completely commercial product. Um, and then we have one from more recent. So Plomo, what was the adaptation that you read? So I read Solo, A Star Wars Tale, which adapts like the film of the same name from 2018. And I think this movie came out after Rogue One, which I feel like had some critical acclaim. And then I feel like this one was more neutral. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I That's a kind this- way of saying it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I will say I watched this film and read this adaptation for the both for the first time this week. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I had fun with the movie. It's a blockbuster, so I'm supposed to have a. I'm. It's designed for me to have a good time, and I'm also ignorant of Star Wars, so I was having fun. And the graphic novel adaptation is pretty much like line for line, the same. It's set. It was seven issues, which I was like, that's kind of rare. <laughs> and thought it was solid. It looked a lot like the actors was giving some leeway to being like, oh, this is a comic. And even though I I feel like the adaptation was solid, when you're adapting like a heist blockbuster film, the pacing is kind of extremely off. Things Mm -hmm. happen so fast. The jokes aren't, don't land the same. Cause again, I feel like the jokes are all within like the same, like the same dialogue panel, if that makes sense, or emotional Mm -hmm. beats. Mm -hmm. The expression isn't the same because you're you're drawing a lot of things on a page, right, for a Star Wars movie, so you can't really have the characters zoomed in. So one of the characters, like, has to explode herself and the bridge that they're on to, like, let Beckett and Han live. And her mm-hmm. face was kind of not as a diss to the artist, but I think just it was like a wide shot. Her face was very expressionless. And then that was kind of <laughs> it. For that scene, for a, like a poignant, like, now we're going to recalibrate the direction of the film kind of scene. <laughs> yeah, you definitely have to give moments like that time to breathe. And that's really tough to do when you're trying to cram a whole movie into seven uh, seven issues. Yeah, yeah. I think that's, you know, like the book I was just talking about, the Batman book, like all those jokes land flat because there's no comedic timing with that kind of presentation, right? And that kind of like kind of as important for the film timing's not important to comedy <laughs> <laughs> but yeah i feel like uh again having watched the movie and then read the comic with within hours of each other i'm not sure who it's for besides completionists and like the cover art is by phil noto which is really great looks a lot like I can only think of his name as childish gambino right now donald, donald glover Cover. yeah phenomenal interpretation of donald as lando and then whoever the heck is han they look cool covers are fun but the interior it's fine enough but i'm like who who is this for (laughs) that's a great question that's kind of the same response i had to batman returns you know at least i think you know those adaptations feel similar because it's almost like because we're reading uh, property that's sort of owned by the same corporate entities. There's an mm-hmm. obligation to like, oh, okay, we've got the movie coming out. Let's do the comic book version. We can crank it out pretty quickly. Hire so-and-so. They'll do a good job. But it's like, yeah, who's that really for? Is it actually a passion project to tell this story, you know, by the writer other than just, oh, I can just adapt this pretty quickly. It's just, it feels, and not to be, um, you know, not to be too critical, but it's like, it just feels like sort of a corporate and soulless in a way that I guess 
sometimes these movies and comics just in general do, but this is the best example of that sort of just like, oh, we're making IP to get kids to give us their money or adults to give us their money, I guess. And I think that's such a shame because I think that like at, at its core, I think that Solo is a really interesting story. Yeah. I just think yeah. that like the reason the movie didn't necessarily do very well and wasn't very well received is because of the whole constantly swapping directors thing mm-hmm. made it difficult for the film to feel like it had like a cohesive vision. Mm. And so I feel like if they had just taken the script and adapted that instead of trying to recreate these moments from the film, mm-hmm. I think that we could have had a really good comic on our hands. That's a good point. I mean, that's, you know, that's something I was kind of thinking about the analogy I was thinking about when talking about these adaptations. It's like, it's what's a good, it's like, think about like a cover version of a song. Like if mm-hmm. you play it straight, it's not interesting. You kind of have to play with it a little bit, but you can't go too far and make it too different. It's a fine line to walk. So I know there have been other comics where they've taken the original script. Like somebody took the original like script for like Blade Runner or took the book that Blade Runner is based on and did a comic book version of that. Right. So it's like, you're kind of adapting the movie, but you're taking a different approach, a different angle at it, which honestly would be more interesting than just try to copy it. Like you said, Brian, like beat for beat. I don't know. I have a, I have a whole playlist of uh, metal covers of Disney songs, so I'm not really <laughs> a, a good judge on that. <laughs> sure, sure. But I think it's a similar approach. The thing is, like, what if you're trying to adapt it line for line? If you're trying to just recreate those moments, it's not going to translate to the comic page. You kind of have to find a workaround to make those emotional beats work on a static comic format. And it's like that. Batman Returns is just so much happening each page. It's hard to tell exactly what's going on. I remember the solo movie when even watching it, I was like, there's just so much happening in this movie. It's like, it's just nonstop. Nothing gets time to breathe. I'm sure it's even worse than a comic book where everything's just, you know, happening at the same time, basically. Yeah. And I, I think that the, the fact that they didn't integrate the different directorial styles very well is <laughs> what killed that movie. Mm-hmm. Cause mm-hmm. there, there were moments where you're watching it and you're like, Oh, that was Lord and Miller who put that scene in. Yeah. And now we're on to Ron Howard again. <laughs> uh, so I guess, Paloma, I'm curious. Um, did you think, even if it's not, even if they're both flawed, is the comic a good adaptation of how flawed the film is? Does that make sense? Is a good adaptation even if it's not good? Are, are they flawed <laughs> in the same ways? Right, exactly, yeah. <laughs> I feel like, yes, it is a good adaptation of a flawed film and i feel like to even pick upon like the fl- like i didn't know they like had changed directors there was okay. just it yeah. just said ron howard in the credits i feel like they also sprinkle in a few like pages like maybe it's the same dialogue but we'll see like a flashback to kira um the amelia clark character to like her training how to fight or when she first became part of this crimson dawn order and then there was maybe one additional scene in the beginning that sets up kind of like the first scene we see, which I think s- starts with like them yelling at Han to be like, get back here. They like set that up, which I was almost like interesting because like in a movie you can be like the in media res, like in the middle of the action, right? Right. But they kind of gave you like a little bit of explanation in the beginning of the comic, which I thought was interesting. Mm-hmm. So I feel like, yes, good adaptation, and you can see where they have to like add some fluff to maybe make some things make sense. Yeah. Reading versus watching. The same. I didn't need any explanation of that. I saw that and I went, oh, Han did a bad thing. Uh, <laughs> right? right <from> there. <laughs> Famed criminal Han Solo did a crime, <laughs> and now he's running from what? the consequences of his actions. What? Uh, <laughs> I mean, I think you're kind of hinting at something interesting there, Paloma, where just like 
there are storytelling techniques that work in comics that don't work in films. And it's like a good adaptation of a movie would maybe kind of like bend the rules a bit to like, oh, we, we're not going to go straight, a straight adaptation. Let's like use what works in a comic for this type of emotional beat or this time, type of story. And it's like, if you, if you can do that, that might be interesting. Again, I think the benefit of the Star Wars 77 Star Wars comic coming up for the movie, there's, you know, and again, this is also in 1977, you had to go to the theater to see Star Wars. You couldn't like stay home and like watch it and kind of go, you know, scene mm-hmm. by scene and kind of compare it to the comic. It's like, it's based on your memory of seeing the movie when you read the comic, right? Yeah, that's a really interesting way of putting it. I didn't think about that, but it's absolutely correct. It's like, this is this is how when I saw Star Wars at six years old, this comic is what I remembered it being. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. I think that's a pretty glowing, uh, you know, recommendation for the adaptations. Like, yes, it captures what you want from Star Wars, right? Yeah. Um, and again, for my pick, Batman Returns, I, you know, I was kind of thinking about the mo- moments I remember liking as a kid in that movie. And I think the one moment that obviously stands out to me is when uh, Batman had recorded something the Penguin said, and then in his Batman-branded CD player that clearly he built by himself in the Batcave, he puts in the audio CD recording of it and then somehow scratches it like a record. And of course, <laughs> none of that God. none of that works on a comic book page. It does not make any sense at all. Um, which again, no offense to Denny O'Neill, great writer. I, I Again, I adore Jose Luis Garcia Lopez's artwork. Not a critique of him. It's just like, they were forced to adapt this into a comic and they couldn't change anything about it. And that's what makes it not, not work. So it captured everything I didn't like about Batman Returns <laughs> in a comic book. That's like that kiss between Luke and Leia. It forces you to just sit and stare at it. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it's there forever. Captured, you know, in that, that moment. I sent that, I sent a screen grab of that to our dedicated Star Wars chat and mm-hmm. I could almost feel the wail of despair that went up from Kara Shamborsky <laughs> as, as she read that. Yeah, I, I kind of forgot about that panel. Like, yeah, it comes off way creepier in a comic book than it does in the film. It's not just a quick peck for good luck. They're like leaning in at each other, mouths open, eyes closed. Like, <laughs> In their defense, they didn't know they were related. They just knew yeah. like she's a space princess and he's the hero. Like they have to kiss, right? So... Um, Paloma, any final thoughts on your adaptation or any of the other ones we've talked about? Are you curious enough to go, if you haven't read any of these other adaptations, curious to go read any of them? Yeah, the Star Wars one, I I did not know it was, the first issue was released prior. And then also, mm-hmm. I, it's my understanding maybe that George Lucas had no clue where he was going to go with the series. So I, I just feel like yes. that would be interesting to read. And I think for the sake of adapting a Tim Burton film i would (laughs) i just have to look at it like just adapting like camp to a comic Mm -hmm. i don't know i don't know if that's a winner uh yeah it doesn't quite work and again i think the the again the aesthetics are what make the move movie interesting but he can't really do much with it on the comic book page um if they're going to adapt a tim burton movie they should have adapted beetlejuice that would have been a good comic Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. uh anyway so yeah i think that's kind of interesting like i said i thought Seeing how those adaptations have changed over time, obviously the Star Wars one, a Marvel just kind of like saying like, oh, we can make some money off the Star Wars thing, even if it flops, we'll just throw some issues out there. And it ends up being the biggest movie you know, of all time. No one who would have known. I do love that idea that like no one knew what Star Wars was. So like, mm-hmm. you know, so even if the film comes out, these adaptations come out they're like, well, we don't know what this this is yet. So we'll just do space pirates. So let's just do, you know, weird aliens. So <laughs> I was just watching an interview with Mark Hamill earlier and even he was like, 
yeah so i I auditioned for this weird flash gordon knockoff (laughs) (laughs) right exactly yeah little did they know and then of course nowadays you know the again the batman returns that was obviously going to be a huge hit because the first one's a huge hit it becomes just part of the marketing for the film is the adaptation instead of being like a work of art or something interesting on its own i think kind of say the same same thing about solo again at that point marvel and disney are marvel and star wars owned by the same company so it's just corporate synergy you know so not to be too uh, cynical to wrap up the podcast, but uh, you yeah, know, I, I don't ever think... want to hear corporate synergy in my comics podcast <laughs> ever again. <laughs> but uh, you know, so so to be um, to end on a more positive note, I guess I think I did have some pangs of nostalgia reading the Batman Returns adaptation. Again, my thoughts on the film have fluctuated over the years. I don't think it works for me as a Batman story, but it was a big part of my childhood. Watched in the theater had all the action figures so reading the comic was kind of a nice trip down memory lane even if i read it as a cynical adult there's still moments that kind of worked for me um and now of course i as an adult i know that the whole subplot about penguin running for mayor is taken straight from an episode of the adam west tv show so you know (laughs) it should have like just adapted that issue and episode instead um but yeah any final thoughts uh I, i think I think there's a lot out there. So I think it may be, this would be a fun topic to revisit at some point, find some other movies, maybe movies that aren't star Wars or, you know, superhero based. Cause there are some interesting ones out there. that have been ad- adapted. I was trying to find the adaptation that tops comics did of Bram Stoker's Dracula, which is really, really good. Cause they get uh, Mike Mignola to draw it. And that movie's Ooh. a mess. And that comic book looks awesome. So that's one to track down if you're uh, looking for something else, something else along these lines. Uh, with that being said, if we don't have any final thoughts, again, if you have any recommendations for blockbuster film adaptations, you can let us know. That'd be really fun to kind of revisit this topic down the road, I think. Uh, until then, we'll be back next week, live on Twitch. Mike, Danny, and Brian are joined by the friend of the show, Kevo. That'll be live on Twitch. We'll have details on that if you go to twitch.tv slash podcast. We'll post about that to let you know what exactly that's going to go down. Those are always fun episodes. Um, you can also find more information about the show on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, Discord, Goodreads, YouTube, everywhere on the internet at IRCB Podcast. You can support the show on Patreon. You get exclusive audio, including a better Batmobile and a series that Mike is doing where he's like making, forcing people to read X-Men comics. That sounds like a, some sort of torture under some Geneva convention, but you can sign up for that at patreon.com slash IRCB Podcast. Infinity Shred is the best band in the known universe. They do all the music for all of our shows. Xander will heal your wounds, but he cannot heal your heart. I want to thank Mike for letting me fill in once again. Thank you, Brian and Paloma, for joining me. Thank you, Nick, for proof listening. And then thank you for listening. Until next time, comics are good, and so are you. Comics are good.